everyone, and welcome to the Legal Matters Podcast, brought to you by the California Association of Realtors. I'm Jana Gardner. Here, as always, my colleague, Dana Spears. Hi, everyone. We are back with another episode to update you on some important recent form changes. That's right. This time, we're going to focus on the many recent changes to the property management-related forms, from the smallest changes to some very significant differences you'll want to be aware of. For sure. But before we get to that, we wanted to let you know about a new resource that is available to you. CAR is all about making sure our members have the support you need to help your business thrive. That's why we've created SmartZone, a new one-stop shop website featuring free and discounted resources to help realtors achieve success, even in challenging market conditions. On SmartZone, not only will you find useful shareable infographics for you to post to your social media accounts, scripts for important conversations with your clients, wellness resources, and valuable information on the latest market trends. SmartZone also features a wealth of legal tools to help you better understand how the law impacts your business. Yeah, and these tools include quick guides on topics like liquidated damages provisions, navigating contingencies, and negotiating repair requests. With SmartZone's help, you'll also learn about what to do when a listing is about to expire and some legal considerations to take into account when staging properties. There's all this and much, much more. So don't delay and head to SmartZone today at smartzonecar.org. That's S-M-A-R-T-Z-O-N-E-C-A-R.org to help you get ahead. All right. Well, we have a lot of forms to talk about today, so let's get right to it. Yeah. So right off the top, you want to be aware that numerous advisories, notices, and disclosures have all been modified simply to change the word landlord to housing provider. And this is to be consistent with the CAR leasing, lease listing agreement forms. We want to make sure we're using consistent terminology throughout. Right. So in order to do that, that required a lot of individual forms to be modified. Mm -hmm. Um, And that includes but isn't limited to forms dealing with the lease and month-to-month rental agreements like the RLMM, the lease form itself, or form EL, the extension of lease, tenant notices. We're going to talk about those more in a second, but the PRQ, NTQ, CTT, NTT, all of those uh, disclosures, addenda and advisories that go along with the lease, like the lease rental mold and ventilation addendum and the bed bug disclosure and other notices too, the Fair Housing and Discrimination Advisory, the Notice of Sale and Entry, all of those forms you're going to see have new revision dates, but the only change you're really going to see on most of them is that the terminology is now housing provider instead of landlord, and that's going to be consistent throughout all of our rental forms. Exactly. And pretty much all the forms we're talking about today will have that change. Yes. Um, Some of them have a few more changes, of course. and. The first ones we will discuss are forms PCQ, the Notice to Perform Covenant, Cure, or Quit, together with the CTT, Notice of Change in Terms of Tenancy, and the NTT, Notice of Termination of Tenancy. And we're going to talk about all of these together because these forms are now accompanied by a tearaway sheet. It's a tearaway instruction sheet right in the front that explains the AB 1482 also known as the Tenant Protection Act. 
um, which we will abbreviate from here on out as the TPA. Mm-hmm. The tearaway sheet explains how the form should be completed depending on whether or not the property is covered by the TPA or not. It also explains the common exemptions to the TPA. Remember that the TPA is the rent cap and just cause law and covers all properties in California unless they are exempt. The law requires housing providers to provide one of four reasons to justify their requiring a tenant to vacate a property and requires a relocation fee or rent waiver by the housing provider. The TPA also caps rent increases at 5% plus CPI, which is the consumer price index for the county in which the home is located. And as an aside, members can find the CPI for their county in our rent cap and just cause Q&A at car.org. Um, Some properties are exempt from the TPA. As I mentioned, common exemptions include single-family homes, including condos and townhomes that are not owned by a corporation or a real estate investment trust. Not to be confused with a normal family trust. Those are just fine. I get that question a lot on the hotline. It's just these big real estate investment trusts, and these are not exempt. So otherwise, single-family homes that are owned by individuals and trusts and even LLCs are exempt. And other common exemptions include new construction built within the last 15 years and owner-occupied duplexes, where the owner lived in the duplex prior to the tenant moving in. Mm-hmm. Recall, too, that you have to claim the exemption to the TPA for exempt properties in order to get that exemption. So um, you do that by delivering a required notice to the tenant at the start of their tenancy, and CAR members can use CAR form RCJC. um, And on that addendum, you can claim the exemption by checking a box entitled Notice of Exemption. You can call the hotline if you have more questions about this um, or for more information. And, you know, keep in mind that not all tenants have this RCJC in place with their current lease. So if you need information on how to get that going and everything, give us a call on the hotline. Uh, I just wanted to throw in a little reminder about all of that since we are on the topic. But this information is included in the tearaway sheet. So, again, the instruction sheet helps you understand how to complete these forms depending on whether your property is covered by the TPA or exempt from it. Basically, the sheet helps make your life a little easier when using these forms. So just don't forget to tear the sheet away before (laughs) providing it to your client. But beyond that, it's really a great assistance tool. Definitely. And, you know, it's it's hard to believe the the TPA was uh, signed into law, believe it or not, almost four years ago now. It's been in effect for over three years. And I know you and I both, Dana, talk to people on the hotline every single day who are still surprised to learn of its existence. I know. So so hopefully having this instruction sheet uh, on the front of these notices, you know, gets gets people aware and keeps everyone out of trouble. Yeah. It's a great little sheet. That's really helpful. Definitely. Yeah. So the next farm that's been changed, has been changed in a very similar fashion, which also now has a new instruction sheet. And that is the form PRQ, the notice to pay rent or quit. So just like the notices Dana was just talking about, really what's happened here is that there's been a warning page, an advisory page um, on before you get to the notice itself that's been added to make sure, again, that anyone who's considering using this form is taking all the appropriate 
laws and rules into account. And now the things you want to worry about when it comes to serving a three-day notice to pay rent or quit for someone who's delinquent in their rent payments are a little bit different than the TPA concerns that we were just discussing. So there's two warnings that are on this tearaway instruction page in front of the PRQ. The first is a notice regarding the CARES Act. The CARES Act, the federal law, um, it applies to properties with loans that were made, owned, securitized, guaranteed, or insured by a government agency, such as FHA, VA, Fannie Mae, or Freddie Mac. You know, those properties are subject to federal law, specifically this CARES Act. Could also be properties with Section 8 tenants or other federal housing subsidy program. There could be further requirements that apply to those as well. These properties may be subject to additional notice or payment requirements before you can issue the the pay rent or quit form, the three-day notice. So again, a warning about that and an advisory that if the property is under the CARES Act, whoever's going to be serving this form, the rental property owner, housing provider, or if a property manager is involved, whoever it is should speak directly to an attorney before they try to serve this form, right? Yeah, because it's really complex. So Really, it's a really complicated federal law and it only applies in certain situations, but better safe than sorry. You want to make sure you're doing the right thing. Mm -hmm. And then the second warning is, is similar, but a little bit more generic, which is just a reminder about the possibility that there could be local rent and eviction control laws in place that could apply to the property. So this is important because many local cities and counties have passed laws that require additional notices or other requirements that are in place when you issue this notice to pay rent or quit. There could be other just eviction control rules. There could be eviction moratoria in place. And relocation fees. Sometimes you have to make an application to the city, which requires a payment. There's a lot involved. Exactly. The, you know, on top of you know, we had the TPA passed in 2019 and going into effect in 2020. Then we had all of those emergency COVID rules in place for so long. And then coming out of that, what a lot of cities and counties did is as the COVID rules expired, they enacted permanent tenant protection laws that changed how these notices, especially evictions, what those procedures are, basically. And so the takeaway from these warnings on this form and on the previous ones we were discussing is that member, if you are a property manager or advising a rental property owner in any capacity, you always want to advise the property owner to speak with a local qualified California real estate attorney Mm -hmm. um, before they do anything, essentially, you know, or consider contacting the city or county directly to verify what requirements could apply uh, you don't want to just jump into the deep end and serve a notice if you don't know what <laughs> right. the rules are. Um, and and these days, I don't think anybody should be attempting an eviction without talking to a locally based real estate attorney before they do anything. Basically, that's exactly right. And I think that most people realize that. But yeah, yeah on occasion there are some owners that will just jump right in. Yeah. Why can't we just do it like we used to? But it's just yeah. not the same. Things anymore. don't work the way they used no, to. No, they that's, don't. That's <laughs> why we have these these warnings and instruction yeah. sheets before anybody makes any mistakes. That's exactly right. All right. So the next form we're going to talk about is the LCA, the Lease Rental Commission Agreement. Um, in this form, a, a paragraph was added to distinguish between fixed term lease extensions and month-to-month rental agreement extensions. And I think many members will find that to be very helpful. 
And another paragraph was added to allow the option to earn a commission on a subsequent sale to a tenant. This is in the lease listing agreement, but for those merely using the LCA, they too will now have the opportunity to capture commission if the rental property is sold to their client, which I think will make a lot of people very happy to see that added. Um, And one small last change for those that are familiar with the form, the pre-checked box for the mold and dampness booklet has been removed since this is already covered in the RLMM, the lease or month-to-month rental agreement. And that's really it for the changes to the lease rental commission agreement. Mm -hmm. All right. All right. So let's spend some time talking about the property management agreement form PMA. The PMA was one of the forms that was given a really major overhaul. And this Mm -hmm. happened about six months ago with the December forms release. You may have already noticed some of these changes uh, if you've been using this form, but they're significant enough that we wanted to spend some time talking through what these major changes are. So, of course, like all the previous forms we've discussed, uh, any references to landlord or owner has been replaced throughout by the phrase rental property owner. So when you see RPO, that's what that means. I've gotten some calls where people miss the introduction of that term. and Like, what is this RPO it keeps referring to? <laughs> so that's always going to be rental property owner. Right. Also, the updated form now allows for the property management agreement to be terminated by either party for cause at any time. This is in paragraph 1B2. This is in addition to the already existing election to terminate the agreement on a 30 days notice, which also remains as an option in the PMA. So this basically is for a situation where you need to part ways with a rental property owner because they are in breach of the agreement or doing something else that would justify a for-cause termination Now, either party can essentially fire (laughs) the other party if they have cause to do so, which is different than just a 30 day, you know, right to terminate the agreement for no cause at all. Yeah. All right. And that that one's instant, right? It's Yes. That is just a if you're basically firing someone for cause, you just notify them and it's an effective termination. That's correct. All All right. So in paragraph 3G, there's a change now where unless a box is specifically checked to obligate the broker. Certain ongoing payments, such as property taxes, mortgage payment, HOA dues, property insurance, and utilities, are specified that are going to be paid for by the RPO. So the default is just the rental property owner is the one who's going to be responsible for making all of those payments, the expenses that go along with the property. Obviously, if you are a property manager who maintains funds in a trust account and you make all those payments, you can still do that. That's an arrangement that a lot of rental property owners and property managers want. Just make sure the box is checked indicating that that is going to be a broker obligation, not a rental property owner obligation. Mm -hmm. There's Mm -hmm. been a small change to the indemnification clause that's in paragraph 4C, offering some additional protection for the property manager. But do remember that it excludes willful misconduct or gross negligence by the property manager. Mm -hmm. So essentially, if you do something on purpose... That, you know, willful (laughs) that uh, creates legal liability um, or commit gross negligence, which is a very high standard of make a mistake. It's just basically inexcusable and a reasonable person could make that mistake. Then, you know, you can't really get indemnification for your client for that. Um, But otherwise, the indemnification protections in the property management agreement are really quite strong uh, Mm -hmm. to benefit 
property managers. It's yeah, a, they've extended those quite yes, a bit. That was done that. mainly in December. Yes, that's yeah. correct. Yeah. And then just a couple more things I wanted to mention. The form also now permits the property manager to obtain liability insurance if the property owner fails to do so and then pass those charges through to the RPO, to the rental property owner. This is in paragraph 4F. So the property management agreement already obligates the RPO to maintain liability insurance on the property that covers them and the property manager. But if they fail to do so, now the property manager can go out and get that insurance themselves and then charge the rental property owner for that. And this is really important because as I was just sort of mentioning, engaging in property management or renting out properties in general is a a high liability, high risk thing to do now more than ever. And if something goes wrong, you're really going to want to make sure you have that insurance. So you don't want the rental property owner to blow off getting insurance and then leave you high and dry. Mm -hmm. So property manager now has that option to be proactive, go out and get it themselves. That's great. And then final thing I wanted to mention is paragraph seven. So paragraph seven is where you can break down. It's the compensation section where you can break down exactly what the compensation will be, what the charges will be that the property manager will charge to the rental property owner for certain tasks they'll perform or certain aspects of property management. So there's a pre-litigation fee, an onboarding fee, a cancellation fee, a file closing fee. Um, So for if you do have in your practice where you break down all of these different fees and charges for different things, there's a place to indicate that. I will say the number one question I've gotten on this paragraph from property managers is, do I have to fill all this out? Do I have to break down all my charges for all these things? You do not have to. Just because it's there is an option. If you still want to say, I just have a monthly charge and a leasing fee and that's it, that is perfectly fine. Hmm. You have no obligation to to get into all of those, but some people do. And so now it's built in there. If you do want to have charges for these different aspects of property management, you can indicate that all in paragraph seven. Mm -hmm. So just a few more things on the PMA. Another change is in paragraph 11, and it's pretty straightforward. It indicates that the rental property owner and the property manager must pay their own attorney's fees for any legal action concerning or arising out of the property management agreement. And this would include any disputes between the parties concerning the agreement itself or their duties and obligations under the agreement. Additionally, in paragraph 14, the property manager now has the optional right to modify the PMA on 30 days notice. The rental property owner has the right to object to that. And if they do, the property manager can rescind the modification or permit the rental property owner to cancel the agreement without a cancellation fee. So that's a pretty important change. Um, Another pretty big change was the owner disclosure paragraph being replaced by the rental property owner's agreement to complete a rental property owner disclosure, CAR form RPOD, which is the RPOD. I'm sure many of you have heard about the RPOD. We get a lot of questions on that. Um, But in the June release, that paragraph was modified again to require not only the RPOD be completed, but in addition, the completion of the rental property owner questionnaire, form RPOQ. We'll talk about both of those forms a little more in a bit, Mm -hmm. but I just wanted to let you know that was another major change on this form. 
The final change in this release was to the signature paragraph, which was changed to require the signature by the broker or office manager in order for the property management agreement to be binding. You'll see the same language at the top of the form in the subtitle. It says it has to be signed by the broker or office manager in order to be binding. Mm -hmm. um, so if it's not signed by either the broker or office manager, the property management agreement will not be held as valid or enforceable. Mm -hmm. And this is really important provision to have in here, right? Because you want to remember that it's always up to the discretion of a broker and via them, their office manager, mm -hmm. whether to even allow property management to be done in their company, in their office. What? Some brokers have a policy that say we don't do property management. So mm -hmm. you can really only enter into a property management agreement with the consent of the broker or via their surrogate, the office manager. And so- yeah. You know, we just want to make sure that everything's being done above board. Nothing's being done behind anybody's back. Right. So just important to have that signature line there. So there can't be any dispute down the road about whether or not the broker was okay with this property management situation. Precisely. Mm -hmm. All right. And that's about it for the changes to the PMA. I think that's uh, plenty of changes. Yeah, this time. <laughs> that was quite a bit. Quite a bit. Exactly. All right. So now I want to talk about a form that's not exactly property management related, but is definitely tenant related, which is the Tenant Occupied Property Addendum, or CAR form TOPA, the TOPA. So this form has been around for a little while now. We introduced this form and this concept when we had our major RPA revision about a year and a half ago at this point. And so this form is commonly used in sales transactions when the properties are occupied by tenants. Now, what we want to make clear, however, is that it needs to be used anytime a residence is being sold that's occupied by any person other than the seller, whether or not you think of them as a tenant. Because I can't tell you how many times I've gotten a call on the hotline or been speaking to a listing agent who tells me, oh, you know, we got a big problem. I'm getting ready to close on this property and the person living in the property won't move out. And I'll say, mm -hmm. oh, okay, well, you have the TOPA, right? What? How is the TOPA filled out? What does it say? And he'll say, well, but it's we didn't use the TOPA because it's not a tenant. It's, it's just mm -hmm. the seller's cousin and he's not right. paying any rent. And so mm -hmm. we didn't think we needed it. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, it, it doesn't matter what you call the person or whether they're paying rent or not. And, and frankly, your seller's cousin, who's you know, been freeloading in the property and not paying rent is maybe even less likely to move out than your average right. rent paying tenant. So mm -hmm. want to have this TOPA form anytime that any adult person who's not the seller is living in the property. And that's, that's anyone who's not on title, not signing the contract, but mm -hmm. is an adult. Exactly. And a paragraph has been added to the TOPA form that obligates the seller to disclose to the buyer who the pe people are occupying the property. So to identify the names of any adult occupants in the property that are not on title, whether or not they are paying rent. So mm -hmm. this could include a husband or wife, if they're not on title and not signing the contract, adult children. So children of the sellers who are 18 years of age or older, not minors, mm -hmm. but right. adult children, other relatives, friends. And then of course it includes your traditional tenants as well. So Again, it's about giving everyone the necessary information so that they understand the situation they're walking into when they're purchasing a property that has someone living in it who is not one of the sellers on the contract. That's right. And like you said, tenants, that's long-term and short-term. If Correct. it's just an Airbnb tenant for, you know, they're, for they're in the property, they need to be there. on there. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. All right. And then the next one I wanted to mention 
does have to do with your traditional tenants. And that is a form, form CAR form NPC, notice of obligation to pay rental or lease payments in cash. So this is a notice that you're really only going to use in a situation where essentially someone's bounced a check, right? So if someone has uh, made a rent payment, but it was dishonored because there was insufficient funds or the payment was stopped or whatever the reason was, they, they, they wrote a bad check and, and then defaulted on their rent because of that. Mm -hmm. And so per our lease, you can then tell them that they need to start paying the rent in cash. And this also follows a legal requirement under the California civil code that says you have to give a tenant written notice if you are going to exercise your right to make them pay rent in cash. It's going to get you in compliance with that law as well. Keep in mind that under the law, after providing written notice, a rental housing provider can require no more than three payments in a row to be made in cash. So Mm -hmm. you give them this notice and say for the next three months, the next three rental payments that are due, those have to be paid in cash. And if they pay all of those successfully, they can go back to being paying rent the old way. But you want to make sure that, you know, you're giving this written notice. Um, Now, this form has been reformatted to add language explaining there are specific paragraphs to use that the lease already addresses the consequences of a bad check. So for example, the CAR standard lease form, residential lease or month-to-month rental agreement, RLMM, already has provisions that sort of warns people in advance, hey, if you write a bad check, you may be forced to pay rent in cash mm-hmm. um, or you know via money order or something along those lines. And you can indicate that in there. And there's also a different optional paragraph that can be checked to alter the lease rental agreement if that hadn't been addressed ahead of time. Because sometimes, you know, you might be walking into a situation where the original uh, lease didn't discuss this because it wasn't a CAR form lease. Exactly. And so you need to actually add this provision. Um, so that's now this all in the form gives you those two different options. And it's it's been reformatted a little bit for clarity as well. All right. All right. So that's it for the NPC, mm-hmm. right? That's yeah, it for that. So that's good. Another form, um, it's kind of a big change. We have the ATCA, the Animals Terms and Conditions Addendum. Now, this form replaces form PET, which many of you, I'm sure, have used, the pet addendum, and is now an all-in-one form that can be used for not only pets, but also for service animals and emotional support animals, which before you could not use the pet addendum when it came to support or service animals. So this is a big change. And you'll find on the new ATCA form, most rules apply to all animals, independent of whether they are pets or assistance animals. And these rules include, among other items, The animal cannot have a history of causing substantial property destruction or causing serious harm to people. The animals must be properly licensed and or vaccinated pursuant to applicable law. And the tenant agrees to properly dispose of all waste and clean up after the animals and keep the premises free from animal odor and stain and take action to avoid pest infestations. And these rules will apply to both pets and assistance animals. The form also has an indemnification clause for housing providers, holding them harmless from liability, claims, demands, and damages caused by the tenant's animals. Our old pet addendum, form PET, also had an indemnification clause. So that's been carried over here 
which is good for housing providers. Now, there's also a separate section that applies only to pets. So this does not apply to service animals or support animals in any way. And the rules are a little stricter in nature. Now, these include things like the housing provider's right to revoke permission for the tenant to have a pet without cause and the right to disallow pets from certain areas on the properties, such as pools, spas, and other common areas, if it is part of a residential complex. And this rule really just mimics a rule that's already in effect for pets in many residential complexes. And another rule requires that tenants include coverage for pets in their renter's insurance policies. Just keep in mind that all of these tougher rules are only for pets and do not apply to assistance animals. Mm-hmm. And that's because by law, housing providers are prohibited from applying these types of rules, these latter type that I've been talking about, to service and emotional support animals. But the great thing is that you can use this form no matter what type of animal the tenant has. This yeah. has been needed for years, right? Yeah. We've been getting a long time coming. Exactly. People wanting, wanting to use the pet addendum because... Like you said, like 90% of the rules apply to service and support animals. And so I think this is a great change. So now you can have this form, you can say, you know, what kind of animal, you know, service, support, or pet. And then you have all these rules that all tenants have to follow. And then it's just those final few that are carved out for pets only. Yeah. Um, and I think this is going to help a lot of people out. That's right. And I think it's important to realize that emotional support animals or service animals that cause substantial damage to property or serious harm to an individual or even a history of substantial damage to the property or serious yeah. harm to people, you know, things like that, You that is one of the reasons that you could right. disallow the, and they, the they can't animals. be a nuisance. They can't be destructive. You know, they yeah. got to pick up after them. You got to do all the same things you would do. Yeah. You, you have know. to do the vaccination if that's exactly. required by law. So. Follow legal requirements. Exactly. You just can't revoke permission at any time or limit their presence. Things like that. Yeah, that's exactly right. So this is a great new form. Again, a TCA, Animals, yes. Terms and Conditions Addendum. And that's about all there is to that. Mm-hmm. All right. All right. So let's circle back and talk about the RPOD, the RPOD, as well as the RPOQ. And you previewed these forms a little while ago. So these are two different forms, the rental property owner disclosure and the rental property owner questionnaire. Now, many of you may have been familiar with the RPOD previously, uh, which was a disclosure form where the property owner answered many different questions. It was given to the manager or lease listing agent and They were intended to use that information to help them properly fill out the lease for the property. But it did raise the important question of, well, shouldn't the owner be making disclosures themselves directly to the tenant without the lease listing agent or property manager being sort of a middleman in that process? And that was great feedback. And that's why we now have two forms. So the new and improved RPOD or RPOD is in the form of an SPQ. It uses the awareness standard, seller, are you aware? And this form is going to be used by a property owner to disclose still to the brokers, but also directly to tenants with their lease, Mm -hmm. the conditions about the premises in 10 different categories. And these are mostly disclosures that are required by statute. So some of these are going to look really familiar to someone who's maybe familiar with something like the exempt seller disclosure, right? The Mm -hmm. ESD. So it's going to have very similar questions on there. And it's going to be asking the property owner to provide information about, you know, certain statutorily required pieces of information. So lead-based paint contamination, meth contamination, 
pest control, water submeters, molder asbestos, HOA rules, death of an occupant for the past three years, as well as any other material facts. Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, when it comes to disclosures relating to leases, there are some that very specifically applies things like bed bugs and mm -hmm. then there's just the and, and lead-based paint and right. then there's just always that material fact question so right. just like the exempt seller disclosure for exempt sellers this form does allow property owners to provide any material facts as well as specific statutorily required ones directly to their tenant so this is a true owner to tenant disclosure form that's the new and improved rpod mm -hmm. now the original RPOD had more than that, though. And that's why we now have split off into its own separate form, a new form called the Rental Property Owner Questionnaire, the RPOQ. Mm -hmm. This form is also in the form of an SPQ, but it's designed to be used by a property owner to disclose solely to their broker, their property manager or lease listing broker, the conditions on the premises in 20 different categories. Right. So there's a few different reasons why we have this split up like this, because some items contain affirmative obligations of the owner, you know, meaning things that the owner has to take care of, such as health and safety things like water heater bracing, smoke alarm installation, you know, things that you can't just disclose and say, oh, yeah, the property's not compliant. Well, it's not legal to lease out your property if it's right. not in compliance <laughs> with those things. So this is a tool for the property manager or lease listing broker to work with the owner and make sure that the property is legally compliant. Mm -hmm. you know, so if the property owner says, oh, no, I don't have smoke alarms, well, that's something for everyone to work on before the property is leased out. Precisely. Um, and then the other questions are, are really more negotiable items, things that get addressed in the body of the RLM, the lease form, such as gas and electric meters, parking requirements, storage obligations, things like that. Right. And there's other items on the form as well that can help a broker, property manager, or a lease listing agent with management questions or in answering questions posed by potential tenants, such as trash pickup days, location of mailboxes, whether the owner allows pets, or if the property has a laundry room, etc. Things like that, that can be very helpful when dealing with tenants. And also both the PMA, the Property Management Agreement, and the LL, Lease Listing Agreement, Exclusive Authorization to Lease or Rent, require the RPOD and the RPOQ. And form RLMM, the Residential Lease or Month-to-Month -month Rental Agreement, requires the RPOD. Mm -hmm. So it's really important that property owners complete both forms. And remember, the agent keeps a copy of both the RPOD and the RPOQ, but only a copy of the RPOD is provided to the tenant. That's right. All right. So the next form we're going to talk about is the RCSD-HP and the, actually it's two forms, and the RCSD-T. These are the representative capacity signature disclosure forms. And some of you are probably pretty familiar with these. We use them a lot in the past. They are forms that are used for housing providers or tenants that are entities, meaning firms like corporations or LLCs or trusts. Now, the RCSDHP replaces a form that we had before, the RCSDLL. Of course, that was for landlord. HP is for housing provider. And like all of the other forms, it got a name change. So it's now the RCSD-HP and the RCSD-T is for tenants. 
So as I mentioned before, the RCSD forms are used for entity landlords and tenants. Mm -hmm. And these forms identify the individual or individuals that are authorized to sign on behalf of the entity and give them the right to sign using just their name on all transaction documents when accompanied by a fully executed RCSD. Now, it's just their name and usually comma their title. So if it's a trust, it would be John Doe comma trustee. And you can use that on all forms after identifying them on the RCSD. Now, keep in mind that this is a form that you will probably only use in special circumstances these days, like when a housing provider or tenant changes to an entity during the course of the listing or lease or rental. And that's because our lease listing, our lease and rental forms now include a section in which the entity is described and the, the authorized signer for the entity is designated. So you can do this right in the forms now and you no longer need to use these as separate forms to identify the authorized signer. Nonetheless, if you do find yourself using these forms, in the updated versions, the separate signature boxes at the bottom of the page pertaining to lease, lease listing, property management, and other agreements have been removed. For those familiar with the RCSD forms, you might remember those boxes. They were somewhat confusing for members, but now they're all gone, so there's no need to say more on that. And the forms are now very simple to use if needed. And that's it for the RCSD forms. Yeah. All right. So before we go, uh, we've talked a lot about all these rental and property management forms. I did want to take this opportunity to just quickly mention one form that's not a rental form. We didn't have time to discuss it on our last podcast. And it continues to be a form that I'm getting questions about on the hotline, out in meetings, uh, all the time I'm talking about this form. And that is the new form SOLAR, C-A-R form SOLAR, the SOLAR Advisory and Questionnaire. So this was added to the CAR forms library in December with a corresponding update to the RPA in paragraph 11M. Paragraph 11M of the RPA states that if there are solar panels in the property, the seller is obligated to disclose all material facts that they know about those solar panels. We've already had for a long time a requirement for sellers to disclose if there's leased or leaned items on the property and provide relevant information. So mm -hmm. if, if it's solar panels that are leased or leaned, Sellers have always been required to provide the documents relating to the that lease or lien. But now what we have is for any solar panels, whether they're leased, whether they're leaned, or even if they're wholly owned, the seller has to disclose all material facts relating to them. And what that paragraph 11M also says is that the seller may use this form, the solar form, to make those disclosures. Now, mm. doesn't say they have to use this solar form, but we couldn't more strongly recommend using yeah. this solar form because if the contract says seller has to make disclosures and this, they may use this form to do it. Why wouldn't they use this form? It, it's right. right there. It's a tool. Um, you know, and I do also want to clarify when I say they don't have to, I mean, the contract doesn't say they have to, if the seller's refusing and they say, Oh, I'll provide it in another format. Okay. Then you kind of got to go with it. Mm -hmm. But I've had a lot of brokers ask me, well, can I, mandate my agents to use this form. And of course, if you are representing sellers, you can have a policy that says, hey, solar panels, we're going to use the solar form. That's what uh -huh. I would do. It, that's, that's a great approach to take. And it's so, it's such a helpful tool, I mean, exactly. for your client. So you can explain that to them that, you know, using mm -hmm. this will help them trigger, yeah. you know, their memory as to the different things that are usually material to a buyer. Right. And um, on top of that, 
one of the things that's so great about the solar form is that it has two parts. Part one, it's paragraphs one through five, is, is the advisory portion, right? It's the solar advisory and questionnaire. So paragraphs one is an advisory. So there's not even anything for the seller to fill out on the first page. It provides the buyer's information about the most common types of solar panel and system ownerships and leases, how payments work, what gets transferred, the importance of reviewing documents. So that's just good information for any buyer to have. Right. And then the second part uh, consists of a couple of paragraphs, about 20 total questions that are formatted just like questions in the TDS or more specifically in the SPQ. And it's asking about seller awareness. So seller, are you aware? And those are going to range from things like, you know, seller, are you aware? Are the solar panels wholly owned or when were they installed or who installed them? Things that the seller hopefully does know. Mm -hmm. And then it's going to have more detailed questions about the technology behind the solar panels. And maybe the seller knows that, maybe they don't, but it's always asking seller, are you aware? So the seller, just like every other disclosure, fills it out the best they can. Mm -hmm. And then finally, just now in June, paragraph 6A9 was added where we now have a catch-all for any material fact the seller needs to disclose about the solar power system that wasn't asked about elsewhere. And we didn't have that before. There was no place for other material facts and now there is, and that's always a good thing. So again, if there's solar panels on the property, highly encourage having sellers use the solar advisory and questionnaire. Right. And they can make their own disclosures, but missing things is a real possibility. And I exactly. don't want them to do that. So That's correct. Yeah. All right. And so that wraps up today's discussion and our coverage of new and revised rental forms. I think we covered it all. I think we did. So this wraps up another episode of the Legal Matters podcast. Thanks as always to all of you for listening. We hope you have enjoyed all of our episodes so far. If you have enjoyed them, the best way to make sure you never miss an episode is by subscribing to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And while you're there, feel free to leave us a review and maybe even a five-star rating. Those reviews and ratings can help other folks find the show. You can also reach out to us here at the podcast directly by emailing us at legalpodcast at car.org. Finally, don't forget about all of the ways CAR Member Legal can help you stay in business and stay out of trouble. Of course, CAR members can call the hotline with any questions or issues at 213-739-8282, Monday through Friday, 9 to 6, and Saturday, 10 to 2, for transactional questions. Our other informational and educational materials can be found at car.org under the risk management section. Head over there to check out our Q&As, quick guides, webinars, and more. That's it for this episode. Thanks so much, everybody. All right. See you next time.